Fired Up show starts right now. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast. This is Steve. I'm your host uh, each and every episode right here on WJMS Media. We have a tremendous show packed for you today and we're going to get right into it without any hesitation because I got a lot of stuff to cover and uh, I'm going to try my best to keep it within the time slot, but we may run a few minutes long, just a heads up. So kicking it off as we always do, let's start with our COVID update. We have a total of 81 million cases that have been reported in the U.S. as of uh, today and 991.2 thousand people have died from the disease. So we are roughly uh, 9,000 people from the 1 million mark in the number of deaths from COVID here in the U.S. Uh, We have 570 million vaccine doses that have been administered and that represents about 66% of people who are fully vaccinated and 78% of people have received at least one dose. So we continue to make the progress. Let's continue to keep working to put COVID firmly into our rearview mirror, all right? All right, let's get right into it because I really wanna uh, cover some ground today. So first thing, um, came across a speech and you might've heard of this. Uh, It was from a uh, Michigan, Uh, State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who was responding to uh, allegations from another of her colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, Senator Morrow is a Democrat, by the way. And she stepped to the floor and gave what I think is an extremely powerful speech uh, and one I think is a working lesson for how the Democrats need to look at their campaign Uh, coming up for both the midterms and the 2024 election. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play her speech for you. It's about four minutes long, so please uh, stick around and listen to it. Uh, It it is best if you hear it in its entirety. I didn't want to slice it up into sound bites. I think it's best if we just go right into it. So uh, the next sound you hear will be that of Michigan Democratic State Senator uh, Mallory McMorrow. Thank you, Mr. President. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me. And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme, because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer, she supports pedophilia, she wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. 
My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people. I also stand on the shoulders of people like Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of the University of Notre Dame, who was active in the civil rights movement, who recognized his power and privilege as a white man, a faith leader, and the head of an influential and well-respected institution and who saw black people in this country being targeted and discriminated against and beaten and reached out to lock arms with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was alive, when it was unpopular and risky and marching alongside them to say, we've got you, to offer protection and service and allyship to try to right the wrongs and fix injustice in the world. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. Each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. People who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape after decades of disinvestment or that healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. We cannot let hateful people tell you otherwise to scapegoat and deflect from the fact that they are not doing anything to fix the real issues that impact people's lives. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I wanna be very clear right now, call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. So again, there you have it. That was Democratic State Senator from Michigan, Mallory McMorrow, who was responding to uh, an allegation from one of her colleagues on the Republican side in the Michigan State Senate. Um, and as I said at the, uh, at the front end of this cut, you can um, clearly hear the indignation in her voice. Uh, you can you know, clearly hear that uh, this is, is something that uh, Senator McMorrow took uh, extremely personally, as, as one would if those kind of allegations are made against you. Uh, but what you also clearly hear 
is that it this is a response to an, an allegation uh, that, according to what I've been able to learn so far, is unfounded. And uh, it represents what I think is a working strategy that, you know, the broader Democratic Party really needs to uh, take some notes on and learn if they are going to have an effective campaign against the Republicans in the coming midterms and further down the road in the general election in 2024. The reason I say that is, to date, Democrats have been um, uh, sort of soft-spoken. They have seemed to have been unwilling to take a hard-edged response to the the lies, the half-truths, and the mistruths that have come out of the conservative uh, political wing in general and the Republican Party in particular, uh, with emphasis on the MAGA wing of you know, said Republican Party. Uh, you know, when, when you are accused of something, you can you know, go, oh, goodness, that's so wrong. Or you can draw the line, stand up, and assert what your truth is in 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 uh, conflict with the statements that are made, and I think that's what Senator McMorrow did here. Uh, it, it is a very powerful uh, speech, and I think if the Democrats want to uh, respond to a lot of the the misstatements that are out there, and you heard a few of them mentioned uh, by Senator McMorrow in her comments, uh, where you know she's being accused of some very serious. Uh, things, you know, um, and all of which, as I said, um, no evidence has come out that there's any foundational proof of any of the things that she was accused of. So I wanted to present that to give you a sense of what I think needs to become uh, a mainstream, a core democratic uh, uh, philosophy and operating strategy going into both the midterms and the generations that we're facing uh, at the present time. So, you know, feel free to, to go online, search out um, Representative Mallory, M-A-L-L-O-R-Y, McMorrow, capital M, lowercase c, capital M-O-R-R-O-W. She is a Democratic state senator from Michigan. Uh, check it out for yourself. Find out, you know, what the story behind the story is with the accusations and uh, what's, what's coming about as a result of what Senator McMorrow is doing. Um, we're going to move on from here into our next segment. Uh, something along kind of a, a parallel track, but one that also kind of illustrates, you know, what the Republican strategy going into the midterms in the general looks like it's going to be or is already. And if you've been following the news over the past week, and I, and I hope you are, as, as you always are, um, following news from multiple sources, uh, you've, pro- you've heard about the battle going on between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the uh, Walt Disney World uh, Company in Florida. Uh, on the 22nd of April, uh, Governor DeSantis signed legislation that could, that could spell the end of special privileges for the entertainment giant uh, based on punishment for speaking out 
against the law that he signed restricting how sexual orientation and gender identity are addressed in public schools. And, you know, in an article from Politico, uh, it's that states, DeSantis made clear Friday that the moves targeting Disney's self-governing status and a special carve-out in another law were retribution for the company fighting against Florida's recently enacted Parental Rights in Education Bill, uh, also known as the, the, quote, don't say gay, close quote, bill by opponents. And he specifically was taking aim because Disney had come out with public statements uh, pushing to repeal the law. So the article talks about the more high, pro high profile, excuse me, proposal signed by DeSantis, which is FLSB 4-C, calls for eliminating six special districts in Florida, including the Reedy Creek Improvement District that has since the 1960s granted Disney privileges, such as the ability to build its own structures without seeking approval from local planning commission and collect taxes and issue bonds. Uh, you know, it, it should be noted that um, the, the districts will have a year to transfer the powers they hold to the municipalities they serve, but the special districts can also return to the legislature to reestablish their special status. Uh, you know, and of course, as, as you might expect, Democrats raised alarms around the unknowns behind the proposal, including some $1 billion in company debt and questions over who would assume control of services like fire departments and water, which would be left up to the four municipalities. Yet DeSantis downplayed these concerns Friday, claiming that Disney will, quote, pay more in taxes, close quote, as a result of the bill. Um, so stepping out of the article for a second, uh, understand that, you know, uh, the, the Disney World complex down in Florida covers about 40 square miles of territory. They have their own fire department, their own, uh, street repair, you know, infrastructure services. They do a lot of the things that, you know, local and state government do for communities on their own simply because they are so large and, you know, obviously it's probably more expedient for them to take care of it themselves than put the, that burden on, you know, state and local government. Um, there are also about 80,000 uh, Florida residents that work at the Disney World complex, uh, which could also be impacted. One of the things that I heard in the news uh, over the course of the week uh, were discussions that um, and, and some are recommending to Disney that they move out of Florida, that they leave. Now, granted, that's not something where you, you pull a few, uh, a few hundred U-Haul trucks up to the gate and pack everything up and move out. That would it would take years for it to happen. But nonetheless, uh, if Disney moved out of Florida, it would take you know, billions of dollars of tax revenues, of uh, economic support for local communities. You know, if you've ever been to the Disney World area, you know that it, it's not just the park. There are businesses that count on the tourist dollars and the tourists that come in to, to go to Disney World for all kinds of services, from car rentals to hotels to meals 
to souvenirs, to clothing, to um, you know, helicopter rides, all kinds of small businesses rely on the draw of the Walt Disney uh, Enterprise in Florida for their livelihood. And if Disney leaves, all of that uh, revenue is going to dry up as well. We've seen similar things happen you know, around the country over the years um, when you know, giant corporations that you know, basically created so-called company towns. When those corporations leave, uh, the economic impact to the residents in those communities is absolutely devastating. Uh, you can see this in, you know, there are documentaries out about what happened in Michigan uh, when, you know, various, you know, automakers close plants and move them overseas or move them to other states. Uh, you know, Detroit uh, is a shell of, of what it used to be in the heyday of the big three automakers. Um, you know, it, it is coming back. It has found new industries and so forth. But there was a period of time where Detroit was nearly a ghost town. Um, so getting back in the article, there was a second bill that was signed by Governor DeSantis, uh, and this was FLSB6-C, and this repeals a carve-out that was tucked into a law passed last year that exempted Disney and other theme parks from a law cracking down on tech companies, a policy that is currently being challenged in federal court. De DeSantis claimed Friday that this position was, quote, snuck into the bill, but records previously reported show that the governor's own staff helped to write it to benefit Disney. Uh, so we'll, we'll step out of the article again, you know, and this is something that we've seen, you know, in in the, the, the political machines uh, over the years on both sides of the aisle where, you know, the the power, the, the party in power is crying foul over something that they helped to create initially uh, simply because it has become uh, an inconvenient uh, truth that they wish to get out of. So, you know, as the, uh, the article concludes with, aside from the, quote, don't say gay, quote, criticisms, DeSantis said Friday that he is also against recent statements by Disney executives discussing efforts to include more diverse characters in their content. He cited recorded Zoom calls from the company that were reported by a, a gentleman named Christopher Rufo, a conservative activist who attended Friday's bill signing and was praised by DeSantis for raising the alarm about critical race theory in schools. DeSantis was quoted as saying, I'm just, I'm just not comfortable having that type of agenda get special treatment in my state, DeSantis said. I just can't do it. So, you know, the, the battle lines were drawn last week. Well, actually, they've been drawn for a while, but they came to a head last week. Um, and, you know, it, it, is, it made all kinds of news. Let me give you a little, a uh, few excerpts from an article from the Associated Press on the same subject. Uh, and this one uh, came out, again, from AP. Uh, DeSantis tests limits of his combative style in Disney feud. Uh, the article uh, talks about, you know, the, the feud between Governor DeSantis and Disney World, uh, but includes the 43-year-old Republican has repeatedly demonstrated in acu an acute willingness to fight over the course of his decade-long political, political career. 
he has turned against former aides and rejected the GOP legislature's rewrite of congressional maps, forcing lawmakers to accept a version more to his liking and prompting voting rights groups to sue. He also leaned into simmering tensions with Donald Trump, which is notable for someone seeking to lead a party where loyalty to the former president is a requirement. Uh, continues saying the Disney legislation, which does not take effect until June 2023, would cause massive economic fallout for the company, the surrounding communities, and the millions who visit the Orlando amusement park every year. Dis uh, Democrats who are facing a tough election year, the article states, uh, are eager to highlight DeSantis's moves as a way to portray the GOP as a party of extremists. In an interview, Democratic National Committee Chairman uh, Jamie Harrison described DeSantis's attack on Disney as a continuation of a, quote, divisive agenda, close quote, geared toward booking uh, interviews on conservative media at the expense of his constituents. Uh, the article uh, conc you know, concludes, indeed, DeSantis's friends and foes in the GOP agree that his crackdown on Disney is a major political victory among Republican base voters already enamored by his pushback against pandemic-related public health measures over the past two years. They suggest it also taps into a growing Republican embrace of anti-corporate populism and parental control of education that resonates with a wider swath of voters. Republican pollsters have been privately testing DeSantis's political strength beyond Florida for several months, finding that the only Republican consistently with more support than DeSantis among GOP voters is former President Trump himself. At the same time, DeSantis is sitting on more than $100 million of campaign funds. The article concludes with, with uh, quotes from Brian Ballard, a Florida lobbyist and major Republican fundraiser, said DeSantis has a combination of popularity and instincts that is shaping the modern day GOP. No other elected official, maybe in the country, has the Republican base support that Ron DeSantis has. So he's incredibly powerful, not only a powerful politician, but a powerful government leader, Ballard said. Quote, this guy really has the reins of power in his hands, close quote. So, you know, as I said, you can you know, read, read the articles that are written about that. Uh, but more importantly, uh, when you look at this, when you, when you break this down, if you also add in the context of what happened in Virginia uh, in the last election there with uh, the newly elected uh, governor there, who also used a uh, combination of Trump-like ideas and um, MAGA-favoring uh, uh, you know, rhetoric and discussion points without you know, formally embracing the former president, which resonated with voters, particularly in the hardcore Republican base, and ended up with him being elected to the governorship in Virginia in, in something of a surprise result. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of 
what's going on in the political world in these two subjects that I've discussed here in this segment. And, you know, it, it is something we will keep paying attention to and bringing to your attention. But it's also something, as always, that you need to make sure that you are doing your own diligence. You're digging, digging deeper, digging wider, gathering information from as many sources as possible so that you can make informed decisions about who has your best interest at heart, which is the ultimate arbiter of who you should vote for in a local, state, or even federal election. You know, listen to what your local elected officials are saying about this subject. Uh, and the one we're going to talk about after the break, uh, we're going to dive back into the discussion on critical race theory. But listen to what your local politicians are saying about CRT and you know what they believe its impact is going to be in your community. Uh, that, that should be a guide to help you decide uh, who is best for you to vote for as they reflect your wishes and your way of thinking. And, you know, whether you are, you know, a, a Republican conservative or a, an independent or, um, you know, Democratic liberal, uh, you need to make sure that whoever you're electing to office reflects your views and how you want the government to represent you because that's their purpose. All right. We'll, um, we'll break it here. We've got a public service announcement from WJMS Media uh, about our exciting uh, event coming up in May where we'll be uh, sponsoring or one of the sponsors for the uh, American Lung Cancer uh, Walk. So we'll be right back after the message. Please pay attention to the message, take notes, and I hope that you will help us in our crusade against lung cancer. We'll be right back. WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice media sponsor for the American Lung Association's 8th Annual Lung Force Walk, New York City, taking place on Saturday, May 21st at Pier 16 at the South Street Seaport in Manhattan. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org NYC. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. And welcome back. And thanks to the WJMS media team for that important public service announcement. Uh, just to dig into that for a quick second. Uh, for those of you that have been following WJMS uh, through its radio days and now into its WJMS media days, particularly over the last three years, you may have heard about uh, the uh, diagnosis of our founder and CEO, uh, Jamie, a.k.a. Jams, and also my youngest daughter, uh, with a stage 4 ALK positive lung cancer back in December of 2018. Uh, if you go to the WJMS radio website and click on health, you can get more information, including uh, Jamie's full story. But I'll give you a thumbnail of it. Uh, as I said, in December of 2018, despite being an active and healthy non-smoker, uh, my daughter Jamie was diagnosed with stage 4 ALK positive lung cancer. Uh, diagnosis aside, she continues to work a full-time job run the operations of WJMS radio while hosting two shows. She is working out as much as she can and is actively fighting for her life. 
Uh, as fate would have it, WJMS now provides her a platform to bring awareness to her cause and others while inspiring those around her to keep moving forward. And that is definitely true. Um, although her involvement I'm sorry, although through her involvement with LCRF, Longevity, and other organizations, she st shares her story with the world to help erase the stigma that lung cancer is a, quote, smoker's disease, close quote. Her motto, I may have cancer, but cancer does not have me. So, you know, obviously a father's pride aside, uh, there is no doubt that Jamie's story is one of courage, tenacity, and inspiration that we all can learn from. So I encourage you, go to the website, read Jamie's story. Uh, if you click on the health link uh, at the main page, uh, you'll see more information. And it'll also give you the opportunity to donate for the Lung Cancer Research Walk uh, which, as it said, is happening on May 21st, 2022. It's going to be, uh, it's going to start at Pier 16 at South Street Seaport in New York City. And uh, there's contact information. Uh, you can go there. You're absolutely welcome to come. Uh, go to the WJMS table, table sign up for um, the, the team, and, you know, you can donate there or you can donate online right now, uh, but please, you know, support the effort. It's a good cause, and I'm not just saying that because she's my daughter. It's a good cause anyway. All right. That being said, let's get back into the news. So we've talked a lot on this, uh, on this show and on this podcast about uh, critical race theory. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty clear on my opinion on all of the hoopla around it. Uh, number one being that uh, there is, you know, no significant evidence that critical race theory is being taught in any widespread fashion in an elementary school anywhere in this country. It is an adult level course. It is uh, generally offered or typically offered in a college setting. And it has been uh, weaponized by the right to a, a platform, you know, to attack so-called liberal support of critical race theory. So we've, we've had a lot of, you know, discussions and arguments, if you listen to the media back and forth. Um, I, I found an explainer uh, from the Associated Press that I wanted to go through and hit uh, some of the high points from here. And I'll include uh, links for this as well as for the other subjects that I've talked about today's podcast uh, on the Facebook page so that you can have access to it. So, you know, what is, you know, the article is so much buzz, but what is critical race theory? Um, the, the concept known as critical race theory uh, has turn, turned into the new lightning rod of the GOP. But what exactly is it? Um, you know, they, there is a lot of discussion about, you know, it, its impacts, uh, supposed, and, you know, what uh, opponents think that it is, it is doing to our young people, our elementary students, and so forth. But critical race theory uh, is a way of thinking about America's history through the lens of racism. Scholars developed it during the 1970s and 1980s in response to what they viewed as a lack of racial protest, a progress rather, 
following the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. So it's been around for a while. It centers on the idea that racism is systemic in the nation's institutions and that they function to maintain the dominance of white people in society. The architects of the theory argue that the United States was founded on the theft of land and labor and that federal law has preserved the unequal treatment of people on the basis of race. Proponents also believe that race is culturally invented and not biological. Um, you know, the, the article continues, is critical race theory being taught in schools? And it states, there's little to no evidence that critical race theory itself is being taught to K through 12 public school students, although some ideas central to it, such as lingering con consequences of slavery, have been. Uh, for example, in Greenwich, Connecticut, some middle school students were given a, quote, white bias, close quote, summary that parents viewed as part of the theory. Republicans in North Carolina point to the Wake County public school system as an example, saying teachers participated in a professional development session on critical race theory. County education officials canceled a future study session since it was discovered but insists the theory is not part of its classroom curriculum. Quote, critical race theory is not something we teach to students, said Lisa Luton, a spokeswoman for the school system. It is more of a theory in academia about race that adults use to discuss the context of their environment. So the, the questions raised is why are Republicans upset? Many Republicans view the concepts underlying critical race theory as an effort to rewrite American history and persuade white people that they are inherently racist and should feel guilty because of their advantages. But the theory also has become somewhat of a catch-all phrase to describe racial concepts some conservatives find objectionable, such as white privilege, systemic inequality, and inherent uh, bias. So, you know, where did this pushback begin? Um, a lot of it lies around the fact that the Republicans had a, what you could call, visceral reaction to something called the 1619 Project as a cause for concern, according to the article. The New York Times initiative, published in 2019, aimed to tell a fuller story of the country's history by putting slavery at the center of America's founding. Critical race theory popped into the mainstream last September when then-President Donald Trump took aim at it and the 1619 Project as part of a White House event focused on the nation's history. He called both a crusade against American history and ideological poison that will destroy our country. So. That's a lot uh, to, to digest in, in one breath. So let, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So it, it mentions the 1619 Project, which was a research project uh, that was done and looked at uh, what happened with enslaved people in this country from their first arrival uh, on these shores in 1619. Uh, it has been, you know, uh, both praised and panned uh, as, you know, on, on the praise side 
as an enlightening study of what has happened to enslaved people and people of color since their arrival uh, on the, the shores of what is now you know, the, the contiguous United States. And it's been panned as a, um, as a tool to you know, inculcate uh, white privilege as a, a detrimental concept to, you know, as it states in the article, to give uh, white people a, a sense of shame for what happened in this country hundreds of years ago. And, you know, all sorts of, of goods and bads have been attached to the 1619 Project. Um, critical race theory followed along, as the article said, you know, last year when, you know, uh, former President Trump made it a uh, political issue and a lightning rod issue uh, in the political campaigns uh, and, you know, basically uh, called it, you know, uh, heresy, among other things, and so forth. Now, you may disagree with that or agree with it or have no opinion on it, but, you know, when the, the discussion of critical race theory comes up, um, you know, it, it really is about, and especially the arguments against it, are really about uh, kind of a denial of some clear facts of American history. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can look at it, and I've had discussions with people who are, you know, adamantly opposed to critical race theory, um, and, you know, they, it, it goes along these lines. You know, they're, they're arguing that this should not be taught, you know, in our elementary schools, to which I reply that it is not being taught in our elementary schools. It's a college-level program. Now, as the article said, there are some things that are taught in our schools that are, you know, along a parallel track with tenets of critical race theory, but aren't the uh, actual, you know, text and body of what CRT is all about. Uh, but if you look at the history of this country, if, you know, if we use 1619 uh, just as a starting point, because that's the documented, uh, you know, time when the first enslaved people were brought to the shores of this country, um, and look at, you know, just the, the mega milestones that have occurred since then. So enslaved people were brought to, you know, the colonies uh, here in America in 1619. We go forward. Slavery is, you know, in effect and is, is being applied uh, all the way up through essentially 1865 when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So slavery ended. And then, you know, after slavery, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, de facto segregation, Jim Crow laws, uh, and, and so forth. And that continued uh, through into the 1960s. Uh, when, you know, various pieces of legislation culminating in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, basically gave, you know, people of color in this country a full, uh, full measure of the voting portion of the, the rights they were supposed to have as American citizens. Keep in mind, side note, in our Constitution, it clearly states that uh, enslaved people, particularly people of African descent, were considered three-fifths human. 
what that meant in terms of the underlying tone, you know, uh, biologically, genetically, you know, and so forth, was that for the purposes of the census and counting, that um, each enslaved person uh, was only counted as three-fifths or 60% of a whole person. So what did that mean? If you had a million enslaved people in this country, they would only count for 600,000. Now, why was, why was that important? Because you know, enslaved people at one point in this country outnumbered the, um, the, the slave owners and, and basically white people in this country. So it was a mechanism by which, you know, a, a thumb could be placed on the scale uh, to, to balance the count and elevate the power or, or the clout of white people in the early United States. So, you know, there, there's that element of it too. And that would be considered an institutional racist policy by definition. So, you know, the, the people that argue that there is no institutional racism are not, you know, reading history, uh, you know, completely and, and honestly. There, there is and there was institutional racism in this country. You look at the school systems in this country all the way up through and, and in some areas of the country today, all the way up through modern times, where uh, school systems that serve uh, poor, you know, rural uh, people of color, uh, you know, immigrants and so forth are much less equipped than schools in affluent, uh, predominantly white neighborhoods. Uh, this has been true, you know, again, going back, uh, you know, hundreds of years, uh, even though Brown B. Board, not Brown B. Board of Education, you know, declared and, and, and separate but equal uh, rulings declared that school systems should be equalized across the board. They weren't then. And in many areas of the country, they still aren't. So, you know, the 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 people who are claiming that you know, CRT has no basis in this country, clearly are overlooking some key things that, you know, have happened in this country that, that tend to prove otherwise. Uh, and you can extend it to, you know, the, the treatment of women in this country. Women didn't get the, the right to vote. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment um, wasn't passed. Uh, in fact, I believe the last state just passed it, like, last year. Um, you know, it, it has taken decades for that legislation to get through. Uh, there, there are all kinds of uh, indications that, you know, you, can, you, you may not be able to call it systemic, uh, but you can definitely call it prevalent. You know, it, it is things that occur in the, the systems of government, the systems of education, the systems of economics in this country that favor one racial group over another. You know, um, so when you're having these arguments, you can, in fact, uh, you know, pull out, pull out your, your phone, pull out your tablet, and Google the number of uh, CEOs uh, in this country that are people of color. The number of members of boards of directors of Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 companies in this country that are people of color. 
uh, the, the number of tenured professors at colleges and universities in this country that are people of color. And when I say people of color, I'm also including women. Um, you know, there are all sorts of indicators of bias in the system. Now, you know, semantically, you can argue whether or not they are, quote, systemic uh, examples of racism. Um, I prefer to use the term prevalence of indications of that these conditions exist. And, you know, critical race theory has become the lightning rod, uh, particularly on the, the conservative and right political spectrum uh, as, as a huge problem in this country that they have to solve by any means necessary. Governor Ron DeSantis has put it into words where he's saying, you know, he's not going to have it, uh, you know, and yet the arguments that they make by and large are based on conditions that don't exist. There, there is no uh, full-blown education of critical race theory or anything related to critical race theory in K through 12 education. Now, does that mean that K through 12 education doesn't discuss uh, topics like slavery, like indentured servitude, like the situations that existed uh, at the start of the Civil War and, and beyond the end of the Civil War in this country? Yeah, they do discuss it, but do they give one, an accurate, and two, a thorough discussion of what happened uh, when and what happened where? And I would argue that then and to this day, the, the discussion of American history is one that is continually being under a revisionist microscope to, um, to excise out elements that you know, fall against the favor of um, white people in this country. Uh, it's just a fact. And that effort continues and continues to be part of the political campaign. So as you look to the campaigns that are coming for the midterms, as you look at the campaigns that are happening in your state and local elections, look for those keywords. Look for, for candidates that are discussing uh, critical race theory uh, in the public school system in your state or in your locality. And you know, push back, remind them that there's no evidence that critical race theory uh, in and of itself is being taught in any elementary school in this country, period, full stop. Now, again, are subjects that deal with the treatment of enslaved people and the treatment of people of color and other minorities, including women, uh, are discussed in you know, the, the upper grades in our elementary school? Yes, they are, and rightly they should be. Is this discussion one aimed at uh, making, uh, you know, children who happen to be white feel less valued, feel, you know, uh, uh, oppressed? No, that is uh, a construct of the people in charge of the systems. They are using that as a, a, a code word, a lightning rod, whatever you want to call it, to appeal to the base of the conservative parties in this country. Um, and it, it is something that 
needs to be pushed back on, just like the uh, Congresswoman, I'm sorry, the state senator from Michigan did with what she was accused of at the start of this show. And you can go back and listen to the start of the podcast to hear that speech again to understand what I'm talking about. So, as always, we need to make sure that you know we are armed with the facts from as wide a fact source as we can. Now, that means that, yes, we need to listen to, you know, sources such as, you know, MSNBC and Fox News and Breitbart and, you know, all across the spectrum, PBS, ABC, CBS, NBC, all of them. You need to listen and, you know, gather your facts, find out the positions, because the truth often is, as we say, some is located generally in the middle. All right, we're going we're gonna to move on to one last uh, topic for the few remaining minutes we have. Um, and this one uh, is news that came out over the last week. And it is that the Republican Party, the Republican, um, yeah, the Republican Party Commission has opted to drop out of the presidential debates uh, with Democrats uh, coming up toward the 2024 general election. Now, let's put that in, into perspective. So what that means is that the Republicans have said they are not going to participate. They have taken their ball, taken their bat, and, you know, they've gone home. They're not going to play. Okay, so I heard a very good position stated on this. And I want to give credit to the source because it's important that I do so because I think it is also it's one of the sources that I listen to on a regular basis in, in the collection of sources that I listen to. Um, but uh, it, it comes from uh, a YouTuber. His uh, his channel is called Bo of the Fifth Column and it's B.E.A.U. of the Fifth Column. Um, he is one of the, the sources that I listen to uh, in my rotation of news sources and opinion sources. I find him to be very level-headed. Uh, he presents, a, in, in my opinion, a, a very um, apolitical view on uh, topics that he discusses. Well, he brought this one up uh, a few weeks ago. And if you, you know, go on to YouTube... Uh, search for Bo of the Fifth Column, and you'll see his uh, his discussion on Republicans pulling out of the presidential debate. What he brought to the table, which I I I found fascinating and very very thought provoking, his argument is to the Democrats, uh, let them go. Don't don't try and fight it. Fine. If the Republicans don't want to participate, let them go. And replace them with, you know, in, in his opinion, uh, they should replace them with the libertarians, which is a very interesting uh, concept, a very fascinating approach to it. Uh, yeah, the Democrats and the libertarians could have the presidential debates uh, and, you know, offer the alternatives. Now, why, why should the libertarians do this? Well, number one, it gets them huge national exposure. Typically, libertarians are not included in you know, uh, congressional, Senate, or presidential debates. 
Um, number two, the, uh, the, the political views and positions of the Libertarian Party are, in general, very much aligned with a lot of the express policies of uh, independents and conservative Democrats and, you know, moderate Republicans, um, you know, ac across the country. So, you know, it, it feeds to something we've talked about on this show quite frequently, the need for a third voice at the table uh, in, in terms of political policy in this country. You know, we've talked about independents forming a political party. Well, the libertarians are already out there. They're already uh, present on most, if not all, of the uh, state ballots, particularly for presidential uh, elections. And, you know, giving them a platform to discuss with the Democrats uh, what the best, you know, approaches are going forward for this country, I think would provide an extremely powerful and thought-provoking and um, informative change to the political landscape that we see. I think a, a Democrat-Libertarian debate uh, would be an outstanding uh, um, pushback on you know, the, the Republican conservative message that's out there. Uh, again, I tend to agree that the libertarian positions on most issues are absolutely aligned with those of you know, conservative Democrats and independents um, who may not be inclined to vote for the Democratic presidential candidate, whoever that may be, thinking that the, the Democratic candidate is out of step with what their views are. However, I think the Democrats can gather some very, very powerful and insightful takeaways from debates and from interaction with the Libertarian Party uh, as a foil against the messaging that's going to be coming from the mainstream Republican Party as well as the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking into this more. I'm, I'm, I'll be digging into the libertarian positions on a lot of the issues, and I will bring all of this to you in a future podcast. But it, it is something that for those of you like me who are, are kind of political thinkers or kind of, you know, look to digest as much as you can in the political realm, um, give this some consideration. I, I think, you know, it, it, it's an excellent idea that's raised and one worthy of deeper thought and more discussion. And again, that was found on the YouTube channel for Bo of the Fifth Column, and, and Bo is spelled B-E-A-U. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He talks about a huge range of subjects, not just politics, but he, he covers a huge range of subjects. And as I said, I find him to be insightful um, and, you know, thought-provoking. And, uh, oh, by the way, he is not a sponsor of the show. I'm, I'm not getting any uh, credit or anything from him. He is one of the sources that I listen to in my regular diet of political information as I prepare these shows each week. All right. That was a lot of stuff we covered today. So, you know, thank you all. 
for sticking with me through this this podcast. We move through a lot of material. If you have questions or comments, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your opinions. If you listen to uh, Bo's uh, talk on that that subject that we just concluded, I'd love to get your feedback on what you think. I'd also love to hear what you think about the comments from uh, Senator Mc, uh, McMorrow out of Michigan, uh, state senator. And uh, let's just make sure that we stay safe, get protected, protect yourself from the COVID uh, virus. Uh, there are some resurgences happening with the new variant. So let's make sure we're all taking care of ourselves, our communities, our loved ones, and our country. Thank you all. And I will look forward to the next podcast coming out in seven days. Take care. Thank you.